So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of John, reading from the 18th verse, just, I'm sorry, the 18th chapter, just the 28th verse. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this evening. Let's ask him to bless that understanding. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word, as we put it into its perspective, as we try to comprehend um, the significance of both your covenants, your loving redemption, your, the sacraments, the signs and the seals that you have given us and how that relates to our Lord Jesus on the cross and the last supper that he uh, ate with his disciples. Lord, help us to bring all of this together tonight in a very short period of time and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the situation could not have been more dramatic on that fateful day that Moses and Aaron went to see Pharaoh for the last time. You remember this has been one of the great dramas of Scripture, a back and forth going on between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses kept saying, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, I'm not going to. And the Lord kept bringing these plagues upon Egypt. Well, by the time we get to the 10th plague, well, there's deep tension between Pharaoh and Moses, and, and, and the situation was more volatile than I think we understand sometimes. This is what we read in the 10th chapter of Exodus. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go, them being the children of Israel. Then Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall surely die. I mean, you know, we know how this story ends up, so we don't worry about that too much. But imagine if you were there. I mean, this is intense. Annihilation was in the air. All that Pharaoh had to do, one of the things you don't like to do is back a wild animal into a corner because they're going to fight you. And Pharaoh had been backed into a corner, and he is unpredictable. He could have simply said to his armies, head on over there to Goshen and kill every man, man, woman, and child there. I'm sick of this. But, of course, we know that's not going to happen because we know the Lord had his hand of blessing upon the children of Israel. So he told Moses, go on back to Goshen and tell the people to prepare. Tell them to prepare a meal because I want them to take a lamb and I want them to slaughter the lamb. They're going to eat the lamb, but I wanted them to take some of the blood of that lamb and daub it on the doorpost and the lintels of their homes and then prepare to depart. Prepare for a blessings the kinds of which you've never had. Prepare to be slaves no longer. Prepare to be my people. I mean, prepare for an epic blessing. And so they went home and they prepared for it. And sure enough, the Lord came that night and visited Egypt. Now, if you were here on Sunday, we were talking about Zechariah's prayer when he talks about the, the Lord visiting his people, we looked at that word, and that word can be a double-edged sword. 
It can mean something of tremendous blessing for those who the Lord finds faithful in following Him, His own people. But it can at the same time can be a time of intense and horrible judgment. And it certainly was a time of intense and horrible judgment for the Egyptians because all the firstborn would die on that very night. But God told the people, I want you to have this meal. And he called it the Passover. Because what it meant was because the blood that was on the doors, when God visited the people, when the angel of death came, they would pass over that house. They would be protected. Now, the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel and the Jews that followed them from generation to generation, I want you to continue to take this meal. I want you to continue to take this sacrament, if you will. Now, yes, it was a command. Yes, it was a statute. Yes, it was a rule. But understand what the rule was. Understand what the command was. Thou shalt be blessed. Thou shalt be redeemed. Thou shalt be delivered. Thou shalt be protected. Thou shalt be sustained. Thou shalt be loved. You see, that's what God was saying to his people when he established the covenant and continued the covenant that he'd already established with Abraham. And so he gave them a sign. He gave them a seal. He gave them a sacrament that pointed toward the great love that brought that about. God loves his signs. He loves to give blessings to his people and he loves to... Give them signs of those blessings. Noah, when he uh, promised Noah that I'll never again destroy the world by a flood, what he's really saying is I'm never going to deal with the problem of sin this way until I bring the ultimate solution, which is in Jesus Christ. He gave him a sign, rainbow in the sky. He gave Abraham a sign, the sign of circumcision, to say, you're my people and you will have descendants like the stars of the sky. And he gave Moses this sign, a further sign of that same covenant, the, 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 the sacrament of Passover. And then, of course, in a New Testament sense, we know that we have two sacraments, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we will take tonight. And, of course, baptism flows from the Old Testament sign of circumcision and the Lord's Supper flows from the time of the Passover. Now, here's the point that I want to start out making. That these sacraments, these signs that point to the great blessing and love that God has given his people, God takes them seriously. They have deep meaning. To mock or to corrupt or to take lightly the sacrament or the sign is to mock or to corrupt or to take lightly what the sign points to. So if people are taking the Passover in an unworthy manner, then it is to to throw the whole covenant of redemption, everything that that represents, back in God's face. Now, the reason I'm starting out telling you this is because this is exactly what the people in this narrative of John are doing. They are defiling the very meaning and spirit of the Passover in what they do. Now, for those of you who haven't spent um, Good Friday with us before, 
Um, let me explain what we're doing. We're in sort of a, a strange sort of series that lasts from year to year. You get one installment of this series every year on Good Friday, and that's it. And so I guess we started about 10 years ago, and, and, and what we were doing is we're taking the entire day of Good Friday, we're harmonizing the Gospels, getting a chronological walk through all four Gospels from the very beginning of Good Friday to the very end. Now, we're using the Hebrew method of telling days. So that is, on, that is from twilight sundown on Thursday, right after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and it goes all the way to sundown on Friday when Jesus' dead body goes into the tomb. And so we're kind of tracing our way through that. Now, what we've already done is we've already left the, 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 the Last Supper. We've gone down the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. We've seen Jesus praying. We've seen the fracas in the garden. We've seen Peter reach out and try to, to defend Jesus. We've seen them follow them to Caiaphas' house where the trials were held, where Peter denied Jesus, and we saw Judas betray him. Now, last year, we were in Matthew, and we were talking about the early morning trial that they had. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, the early morning trial where they condemned Jesus so they could take him to Pilate's house. We talked about Judas and about the money and the remorse that he felt and trying to turn the money back in and not being able to and then finally committing suicides. Now, we're in a transition between the Jewish trial, and the Roman trial. We're not going to get very far into the Roman trial. In fact, we're not going to get past the front door because that's where they're going to stop. And that's why we're taking a look at just this one verse. And so that kind of puts this in perspective of, of why we're dealing with this particular verse because John gives us more details here than the other Gospels do. Most of the other, well, all of the other Gospels go directly from the early morning trial directly to the interview with Pilate. John gives us quite a few details. So even though we just studied this in our study of John, well, over the next several years... <laughs> How many years? I don't know. But over the next several years, if God gives us that many years, well, we'll continue on through the passion, the trials, right up to the crucifixion, right up to the time Jesus goes into the tomb. What we do after that, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I probably won't have to worry about that, um, the, rate, the rate that we're going. But with that said, let's dive into the text uh, because it's going to put things into perspective. So turn, if you will, to that 28th verse of the 18th chapter. And, and once again, we're going to see how these people are corrupting the whole idea of the sacrament that we're going to be taking in a little bit. It starts out this way. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. The they here would be the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of, of the Jews. Uh, mainly high priest and chief priest. And these are the ones that were involved with that early morning trial. I, I can almost guarantee you that Caiaphas was leading the way. And I can also almost guarantee you that Annas was not. Because he was always sort of behind the scenes. But in, other, in, in, in any way, they're leading Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. And I notice how John just kind of skips the early morning trial because John makes a very close comparison between Caiaphas and Pilate. So he's going directly to the confrontation with Pilate. Now, 
this transition where we are, are is, as I said, we're passing from one set of trials to the second one, the so-called Jewish trials to the so-called Roman trials. Now, the Jewish trials, there were three actual trials, and we've already been through them, but let me just repeat them for you. First of all, there was Annas, the great high priest, though he wasn't the acting high priest. Now, Annas was, of course, the snake in the grass, the evil upon evil of all all of this. I mean, the greatest evil that Jesus is going to uh, approach is going to be these high priests. And then the second trial was Caiaphas' house. That's his son-in-law, and he's the acting high priest. And that, of course, is where Jesus was condemned. It's sort of a kangaroo court, if you will. Very illegal from start to finish. And then the third trial occurred right at dawn because they couldn't condemn a man to death during the middle of the night. So they waited we call that the rubber stamp trial. All they wanted to do was just have a rubber stamp so then they could get Jesus to Pilate so that they could have him crucified. Now, I want to remind you something about John's gospel that you might have forgotten because it's been a while since we studied this. If we back up, and we are later on, if we back up to the 13th chapter of John, which is where we have John's rendition of the Last Supper, we're sort of on the mountaintop spiritually. We're sort of at the height, the pinnacle of what you can get. Because after that beautiful uh, 13th chapter uh, uh, rendition of the Last Supper, we know that Jesus spent the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters telling his disciples what's going to be, what the relationship is with him, what the relationship is with God, what their relationship is with the world and the Holy Spirit. I mean, he just gives them amazing, beautiful, beautiful instructions. And then there's that 17th chapter. And that 17th chapter is the Son of God in a chapter-long conversation with his Father. I mean, we're back on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, folks. Now, Moses isn't there and Elijah. I'm talking figuratively, of course. Moses and Elijah aren't there. We have Jesus and his Father locked in a conversation, and we get to witness it. I mean, you can't get any more glorious than Jesus talking with his Father in that 17th chapter of John. But then what John does is he both physically and, and, and symbolically takes us from the mountaintop down the, to the Kidron Valley right into the cesspool, the sewer of this world. Because from that point on, it's evil upon evil upon evil. All the way until the time Jesus' dead body goes into the tomb on, at the end of Friday, at the end of Good Friday. But the ultimate evil... The ultimate evil that John represents is not the Roman world. It's not Pilate. It's not Barabbas. It's the high priests. It's the religious figures because they are the ones who are taking the great blessing that God has given them and corrupting it and manipulating it and throwing it right back in God's face. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Well, anyway, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, we know where Caiaphas' house was, but we're not 100% sure where the governor's house was. And not that it really matters all that much, but I I don't know. I kind of like to know, visualize these things where they might be. There's two places that it might have been. 
One was Fort Antonio, which is right next, literally built uh, in the wall or on the walls of the temple complex, right next to the temple. That's where all the soldiers were. That's sort of the bivouac uh, of, of where their quarters were. And that's the more likely place. Some people really hold out for the fact that Pilate was staying at Herod's palatial mansion on the western side of the old city right by the walls. And the reason they say that is because the Romans would typically do that. They would come into an area and they would take the best that was there for themselves and that's where they would stay. Now, Pilate has done that, just not in Jerusalem. Pilate's home, if you will, was a place called Caesarea Maritime. It's just north of there and a little bit east. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. We've been there. It's a beautiful site. I I mean, Herod the Great had built this huge mansion on a promontory going out just like right on the water. And so the Romans had had come in and taken that over. And in fact, it was like a little Roman conclave in the middle of Israel. They, They had an amphitheater there. They had Roman baths there. They even had a hippodrome there uh, where they had chariot races and gladiator fights and I'm told they also killed Christians there during the Christian era but that's where Pilate lived the reason he was down in Jerusalem was because it was Passover and there was always trouble at Passover so he is there to kind of oversee it and make sure that nothing's going to go wrong Um, and so it would make sense that he was staying in Herod's palatial home if it weren't for the fact that Luke tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and then Herod sent Jesus, this is Herod Antipas, by the way, uh, sent Jesus back to Pilate. There's the feeling of distance there. Not they just sent him down the hall because they're staying in the same house or even across the courtyard. So I tend to see them going to the Praetorium, going to Fort Antonio, and that's where they're having this interview with Pilate. But if you notice, they only make it as far as the front door. Look what the, oh, by the way, it was early morning. Let me, let me just mention that just a wee bit. Um, it, and I've mentioned this to you before. Isn't it amazing what these people accomplished in just three hours? I mean, this is one of the greatest feats of treachery in the history of humanity. In three hours, remember, it only gets light maybe about 5.45 in the morning during that particular time of year. So they didn't have much time. They can't hold the rubber stamp trial until the sun comes up or until dawn comes. So they're sitting there waiting until the first light of dawn. They hold their trial. They get Jesus to Pilate's house. They get Pilate to condemn him. They've got to go back and forth. They get him beaten twice, second time within an inch of his life, carry the cross all the way through town and nailed to the cross and crucified by nine o'clock in the morning. That's amazing. So, so they, this was early. Now, it's not unusual that Pilate was also up at that time because Roman administrators started work before dawn. In fact, folks, Most of the world starts work before dawn. We're the ones that sleep late. We're the ones that think that, you know, we've been unprivileged if we have to go to work at 8. You know, Um, when when we go to Haiti, they have a worship service service at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, for the farmers who are going out to the field. So it wasn't anything. They would start work right at dawn. They would work till 12. 
then they would stop because it got really hot in the afternoons and they would do other things in the afternoon. So it's not unusual that they would have this meeting very, very early in the morning. So they take Jesus there, and and then they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I want you to go ahead and see how upside down this is. These men have just committed one of the greatest injustices of all time, condemning the Son of God to death pushing the trial through. Every illegal thing they could possibly do during the night, they did. And now, they're not going to enter the house of a Gentile so they won't become defiled. So why do you think they would be defiled? What What would it be that would defile them by entering Pilate's house besides just entering the house of a Gentile? Well, there's several things that it could be. could be they didn't want to get dust on their shoes. I'm not joking. This is serious. They, 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 they saw Roman shoulders going in and out with dirty shoes, and there was Roman dust inside the house. And so if they went inside the house and they got some of that Roman dust on their sandals and on their robes, they might be defiled so that they couldn't take the Passover. So that was one thing. Also, it might be because there was yeast in the house. And remember, part of the Passover was to get all the yeast out of your house. So they decided that they weren't going to go in there because they might be defiled from the yeast. But more than likely, every other reason that they wouldn't go into the house is some kind of nitpicky legalistic reason that, that they lived by. But the only one that actually holds water is that they didn't want to go inside that house because of what went on inside of it. They didn't want to enter a Roman house because of what Romans did. And I'm not talking about the gross immorality that occurred in Roman houses. I mean, just go to some place like Pompeii and look at the artwork on the walls, and you can see that they were quite immoral. But it was the fact that they held absolutely no value for human life. It was the father's prerogative. If he wanted a son and his wife delivered a girl to take that girl and throw her on the trash heap and let her die. Because that was his prerogative to do. They did practice abortions then too. And the fetuses went right down the drains out into the street. And so the Romans, I mean the Jews didn't want to go in because of that barbaric practice of killing unborn children. And they knew that if they were even to be in the same house with that, that they would be defiled and that they couldn't take the Passover. Again, I say this is the only actual point that they had. Can you imagine anyone, Jew or Christian, supporting those who take the lives of unborn babies and then sitting down to the table of the Lord to celebrate the Lord's Supper? That's an abomination, and that is what Paul means by taking this supper in an unworthy manner. Well, anyway, for whatever reason, they would not go into the, the, the house to be defiled. The reason they wouldn't do it is so they could take the Passover. Now, they've just condemned the Son of God, who was the one who gave the, 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 the love and the blessing that the Passover was a sign of. And now they won't go into a, 
uh, a Roman house because they want to take the Passover. Did anyone see anything kind of out of, out of whack here as far as the timing is concerned? It's Friday morning. Passover's already over. I mean, it's very specific about when the Passover is taken. It's taken on Thursday evening at twilight. Well, now it's Friday morning at dawn, and they want to take the Passover? So what does that mean? Well, there's quite a few different ideas of what that might meant. Let me just tell you the one that isn't true. I don't, I don't really care which one you adhere to because they're all valid in their own right, but there is one that's absolutely not true, and that's the one that the skeptics love to jump on and say that this is a contradiction in Scripture. Oh, poor John, he just didn't know what day it was. Really? I mean, John's a consummate Jew. I mean, they knew exactly what day it was. And of course he's not going to get it wrong. But that's, that's the one option that simply isn't true. But there's so many different ones, and I'm not going to go into all of them. could have been a difference in the times. Sometimes the north and the south um, looked at times differently. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had different days. They were sort of in a struggle as far as the calendar and which day actually was the Passover. There was um, uh, uh, several different reasons as to why they might not have taken the Passover, I happen to think that most likely it was because there was a consideration in Jewish law, not the biblical law, but Jewish law, that if you were involved with some kind of mitigating circumstance that kept you from taking the the, the Passover, that you could postpone it and take it later. Then I would imagine that's what's going on. Because after all, these men had mitigating circumstances. These men missed the Passover because they had to kill Jesus, because they had to condemn Jesus. They had to get him to Pilate first thing in the morning. And so, remember, Judas left the Passover meal kind of halfway through the meal, so they didn't have time to take the Passover. They couldn't be at home. They had to be on the ready. And so Judas had to get to them, tell them that now you can get him. I know where he's going. They had to get to Pilate to get a contingent of soldiers. Then they had to get to Gethsemane. The rest of them had to get to Caiaphas' house. They had to spend all night long condemning Jesus and then wait up for that early morning trial. They haven't had time to have their Passover. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to take the Passover in an unworthy manner. That's what it means to take a corruption of a, of a sacrament that God has given them to point to his great blessing, his great love, his, his special dealing with the Jews, the covenants that he's given them, all of redemptive history. That is to take that and throw it back in his face. And as I said earlier, that if you corrupt and defile the sacrament, you corrupt and defile what the sacrament points to. Now I hope that you can make the transition with me. Because this text is speaking of the Passover. But we all know that the Passover was the meal that Jesus was taking with his disciples. When he instituted the Lord's Supper. The very sacrament that we're going to take tonight. So there's an easy transition. And the same situation exists for all of us, all who would take this meal. Paul warns us. He warns us severely not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. 
1 Corinthians, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When you think about what this sacrament means, what it points to, what it's a sign of, what it's a seal of. It's a sign and a seal of the blood on the doorpost and lintels, not of your home, but of your heart. And the fact that Jesus gave his blood and his body for those who will trust in him. And he suffered immeasurably, as we talked about earlier. And he died on the cross with your sins and my sins upon him. And he spent an eternity on that cross in the three hours of holy darkness as God poured his wrath out upon him for the very sins that you deserve to be punished for. That's the reality. The sacrament is a sign and a seal of that reality. Who could take it in a flippant In a careless manner, an irreverent way. And yet I've been to so many churches who do just that. Oh, oh, the elements are in the back. You know, take them if you want to. No, no pause, no meditation, no thinking about what we're doing, no thinking about what a sacrament actually means, and the fact that if we defile and belittle the sacrament, we defile and belittle that which the sacrament points to which is the very salvation that will allow us to wear the robes of righteousness and stand before a holy God. And so that's what we don't want to do, folks. But I want to leave you tonight with what we do want to do because Scripture teaches us that. Now, we have to go back to the 13th chapter of John. And John shows us in the most beautiful image of what Taking this sacrament really means the heart of communion is what we're going to see. Now, I'm not going to exposit this text. It's not my purpose. But I want it to form an image in your mind as we turn to take communion together. It's from the 13th chapter of John. If you want to follow along with me, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, usually when we look at that foot washing, we talk about Jesus and being a servant, how he's called us to be servants to each other. 
And, and truly, that, that it is it. Jesus was the servant of all servants. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it's that ransom for many part I want to talk about because that's really what's going on here. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, unless I wash you, unless I cleanse you, unless my blood is on the doorposts and lintels of your house, the heart that you have, you have no share with me. You cannot cleanse yourself. There's nothing you can do. You cannot stand before my Father in heaven. Only if I wash you, if I clean you, if I give you my blood, if I sacrifice my body for you, then and only then will you stand before a holy God. Unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. Brothers and sisters, that's what this sacrament means. That's why we take it reverently. There's two things we want to remember as we go and we take the, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Two things. First of all, what Jesus said, or what John said of Jesus early. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <laughs> this is a commandment to take this. But it's a commandment to be blessed. A commandment to be loved. A commandment to be redeemed, a commandment to be delivered. That's the commandment. That's why he wants us to take it. It's a means of grace. But there's something else he wants us to think about as we take this. That's down in the 34th and the 35th verses of the same chapter. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You see, when we take this sacrament, brothers and sisters, it becomes a bond that holds us together. We are bound together in Christ. And this is a sign and a seal of that binding. We are the body of Christ. He is the one who holds us together. And therefore, we don't come to this table quibbling with each other. And that doesn't mean that we do not quibble over essential doctrines. We certainly do. But we don't come with our petty differences. We put those aside because we are unified in the one who died for us and who gave us this sacrament. The world will try to pull you apart, brothers and sisters. There's so many reasons that the world gives you to be separated, to be disunified. But we are held together by the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. And nothing can pull us apart. That is why we take these silly little packets. But it's what they mean. It's what they mean, brothers and sisters. And that's the reason I want to just flow right into the communion. I told you we were going to do this. I'm not even going to say a prayer or sing a song until afterwards. I'd like to go right in and make this part of this message. Because this is what Jesus meant, I think, for us to do. A body of Christ come together and to remember all that we have just talked about as we take the sign and the seal of this sacrament and this covenant in a worthy manner. Since I read a little bit from Paul in 1 Corinthians, let me go back there and read from him as we take this. As I told you, remember this is kind of a strange way to get into this. You pop it out. But 
Reading from the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And this is the bread, this little wafer that you have. He took bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Hallelujah. Jesus comes soon. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, you are such a loving and a blessing, God. You desire to shower us with your love and your blessing. And we realize that as we read the Ten Commandments earlier and we recognize the laws that you've given us and the commandments and how you say that true love is grounded in obedience and that we're going to follow you according to the dictates that you give us. And and, and some people look at that and say, what a bunch of rules and laws and legalism. But it's not. This is where love is. This is where blessing is. This is where it's to be found. And obediently following what you tell us to do and to do it in a worthy manner. As we have la- you have laid out for us in scripture and as we have laid out this evening. Thank you dear Lord for this sacrament. But more than this sacrament we thank you for what it points to. What it signifies. What we go back to remember. And that is the one who died on a cross in absolute misery. But by doing so he did so so that we might be atoned that we might be forgiven, that we might be made righteous with his righteousness and not our own and stand before you and look forward to a place at the table and a celebration that will last throughout all eternity. Dear Lord, thank you for all of these things and we cannot begin to give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.